On this week's edition of New York Now, what's next in Albany? That's the question as lawmakers begin their final two months of session for the year. We'll tell you about a few ideas that could come up, and Jimmy Bielkind from The Wall Street Journal joins us with analysis. Then, New York is no stranger to corruption and ethics issues. Senator Liz Krueger wants that to change. She joins me on that and shares her thoughts on the rest of session. And later, what did dairy farmers in New York have to do with natural gas? We'll tell you. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. The next two months in Albany could go one of two ways. The conversation could be totally consumed by the ongoing impeachment probe into Governor Andrew Cuomo who's under investigation over claims of sexual harassment and COVID-19 deaths at New York's nursing homes. We don't know when the state assembly is going to wrap up its impeachment inquiry, but it could really be any time in the next few months or weeks. But there's also a second scenario where the state legislature considers a package of new policy items before they leave Albany for the year. And we don't really know what's at the top of their list, but there are a few ideas floating around. Take a look. The state legislature in New York doesn't stay in session all year. Lawmakers usually come to Albany a few days a week, from early January to sometime in June. So we now have less than two months left in this year's legislative session. And we don't really know how Democrats, who control the state legislature, plan to use it. Even Governor Andrew Cuomo said this week that he doesn't have anything on deck for the rest of this year's session. My policy priorities were passed in the budget. I had outlined them before. We have work to do. This is a very operational phase for state government. A lot of what Democrats wanted to accomplish this year was included in the recently passed state budget. They got new tax hikes on wealthy earners, historic investments in education, and a lot more. But advocates are hoping lawmakers consider other issues this year as well. One of them is parole reform. Sochi Nemica is director of the New York Working Families Party. We know that incarceration without a fair chance of release is a death sentence by another name. We cannot allow that in our state. Advocates want lawmakers to focus on two parole reform bills. The first, called elder parole, would give incarcerated people over the age of 55 who've served long sentences a shot at parole through a hearing with the state's parole board. That wouldn't guarantee someone parole, it would just give them the chance to plead their case. And a second bill, called fair and timely parole, would place a heavier burden on the state parole board to justify why someone shouldn't be released when they're parole eligible. Assemblymember Carmen De La Rosa is a Democrat from Manhattan. Everyone across the board must be given the opportunity to show their transformation because my life is not more important than your life. We are equal human beings in the eyes of God, and the law should reflect that. Not everyone wants to make access to parole easier in New York. Republicans in the state legislature see parole reform as part of a larger trend by Democrats of siding against members of law enforcement. Senator Fred Akshar is a Republican from Broome County. The majorities in both houses of the legislature, of this governor, they continue by way of their policies to put criminals 
and murderers before the safety of law-abiding citizens. Also on the list of potential issues for the year is what's called medical aid in dying. The legislation would allow doctors to prescribe lethal drugs to people with terminal illnesses who want to choose when their life ends rather than wait to die from their condition. That's already legal in 10 states. Corrine Carey from the group Compassion and Choices says New York should be the 11th. If you've watched massive pieces of legislation that have made change of people's lives in the past in Congress or in New York, you know that it, sometimes it can take decades. I don't think it's going to take decades in New York. We are getting very close. Opponents of the idea fear there aren't enough protections to prevent someone from being coerced into prematurely ending their life. And as of now, it doesn't have the votes to pass. That could change in the next two months. But lawmakers will also have their hands full with the potential impeachment of Governor Cuomo. Cuomo's currently under investigation over claims of sexual harassment and his handling of nursing homes during COVID-19. The Assembly has an ongoing impeachment inquiry, and the state AG is also investigating Cuomo. There's no deadline for either probe, but lawmakers are hoping to move things along sooner rather than later. So it could be either a very busy end of this year's legislative session or sort of a dud. Jimmy Bielkind from The Wall Street Journal is here with analysis. Jimmy, thanks for being here. Good morning. So do you think that the governor's impeachment probe, this is the big question for me, is the impeachment probe from the assembly going to suffocate everything else that's going to happen in Albany over the next two months until lawmakers are supposed to leave in June? Well, there's no precedent for this, at least no recent precedent, but my sense talking with lawmakers and just understanding the rhythms of what happened in this budget and what needs to be done in the rest of the session is yes. Uh, it seems that we're starting to hear some push for advocates by various issues, but lawmakers I talk to sound wiped out. Uh, Governor Cuomo seems like he doesn't have much that he wants to see happen. Uh, and even legislative leaders tell, say that it's, it's been a draining budget session. Uh, there were strains that emerged within the Democratic conferences. And a lot of the policy items that had been on the table for this year were settled in the state budget. Uh, I think we'd be having a very different conversation if mobile sports betting and some of the gambling issues did not make it through in mm. that final 10-bill spending plan. But they were resolved. And my guess is you're going to see a pretty light agenda for the rest of the year. Do we know what the, and I guess I know the answer, but do we know what the impeachment inquiry looks like right now? Like what's happening? We don't know because it's all done kind of behind the scenes, but do you get a sense of how that's moving along? I spoke this week to Assemblyman Michael Montesano. He's a Republican from Long Island and he's the ranking GOP member of the Judiciary Committee, which oversees that impeachment probe. He said that more than 100 people have reached out through the hotline set up on April 1 by wow. the impeachment investigators. And we also know by Chairman, Judiciary Chairman Chuck Levine, a Democrat, that the scope of this probe has only expanded as we've seen news reports regarding Governor Cuomo's alleged use of state resources to get coronavirus tests for his family, as well as the governor's purported use of state resources and some of his government aides to work on his book, uh, American Crisis, which was published last October. So the inquiry has a lot on its plate. Uh, and in addition to sort of its core mission of assessing allegations of sexual harassment and inappropriate workplace 
conduct against the governor, as well as state policies toward COVID-19 and uh, the bridge over the Hudson River between Nyack and Terrytown, which I will not name. I was going to say, are you going to say the name of the bridge? I will get lots of reader email, Dan, and, and I want to spare that. Uh, and we should just note, uh, as always, that Governor Cuomo has said he's cooperating fully with all of these inquiries. He's denied inappropriately touching anybody, and he's apologized if his workplace behavior made anybody uncomfortable. Yes, and I think the vibe between the governor and the legislature is even shifting just like incrementally, just a little bit day by day. They're coming together and not never a kumbaya again, I don't think. But there's not so much animosity, at least publicly, because the, I think the, the further that we get down this, the, the less accusations are coming out, so there's less pressure, and then lawmakers are kind of just moving along and, and trying to get business done. But ahead next year is the race for governor. We don't know if Andrew Cuomo is going to be on the Democratic ticket. He hasn't. He said he was going to run, and then I asked him a few weeks ago, and he basically said, I don't want to talk about politics right now. The Republican ticket is starting to form. And there are a lot of candidates that are coming out. Tell me what you know about that. That's right. And, and actually, a, a kind of a first uh, assessment is going to happen on next week at the state, uh, near the state capitol. We're going to have Republican Party chairs gathering with several candidates, including two sitting members of Congress, one political scion, and current and former county executives. Uh, mm. So. Lee Zeldin, a congressman from the eastern end of Long Island, is the first and so far only declared candidate for the GOP nomination. Zeldin's a former state senator. He is a military officer, and he was able to raise a million dollars, his campaign said, in the first day of his candidacy. Of course, wow. one of the problems with being a Republican candidate in a deep blue state like New York is you're often seen as non-viable. And if you're seen as non-viable, no one will give you money. And if you don't have money, you're never going to be viable. And it's just this vicious cycle from which uh, prior Republican nominees, especially against a strong incumbent like Governor Cuomo, have not really been able to escape. Uh, this time, obviously, the dynamics are different. And even if Governor Cuomo is not on the ticket, Republican operatives say that they feel they have a very strong chance this year because Democrats in total control of the state legislature and the state government have enacted policies that Republicans hope can rev up the base. Uh, of course, we've heard that in the 2020 elections, uh, where there was lots of concern about criminal justice law changes and changes to the state's bail laws. And guess what? At the end of the day, Democrats end up gaining seats. 20 seconds left. Is there a favorite for the Republican Party at this point? We have so many candidates. Is there one that is getting the most support? It's not clear to me. No, not at this point. We have two candidates who are coming forward who have run previously. Both Rob Astorino and Dutchess County Executive Mark Molinaro say that they'll be attending the meeting. Uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of the North Country is also going to be coming, as well as Andrew Giuliani, who worked in the Trump White House, and his father is this guy named Rudy, who you might have heard of <laughs> for, for his previous activities. I have heard of that guy named Rudy. Yeah. We have to leave it there. Jimmy Vielkind from the Wall Street Journal. Thank you as always. Thanks for having me. So the controversies surrounding Governor Cuomo have reignited the conversation over ethics reform in Albany. The state's current ethics agency called JCOPE is supposed to enforce the state's ethics laws, like when a lawmaker or a governor is accused of misconduct. But that rarely happens. What we see more often is action from either a federal or a state prosecutor. So some lawmakers want to either strengthen JCOPE or replace it altogether. And that could be something they consider in the next few months, among other things. 
For more on that, Senator Liz Krueger joined me this week and also shared her thoughts on what's next in Albany. Senator Liz Krueger, glad to have you back. Thank you. So I want to talk to you primarily about J-COPE and ethics issues, but before we get to that, we have just wrapped up a very busy budget season. You are chair of the Senate Finance Committee, which means that you negotiate the state budget. And I'm wondering from your perspective, this budget was packed with so many different things. I have not gotten through it. I don't think that a lot of people have gotten through it. Was there anything that didn't make it in that you wish had? Hmm. You know, we always have things that we hope we'll get in and then don't. Um, we really tried hard to address the concerns of home care workers who are working for $13 an hour. And that means in much of the state, you could make more money at a fast food restaurant than taking care of our most vulnerable citizens. And so we tried and tried and we just could not come up with a way to find the money or to make sure it went to the actual worker, not the managed care company or the agency. But we're not giving up because now President Biden has said that it's one of his top priorities for his next infrastructure bill. And we're already sitting and working with Washington DC to try to make sure that New York not only gets its fair share of this money, but that we can use it to help invest in some of our hardest working, lowest paid employees in New York, the people who take care of our parents and our grandparents, home care workers. Kind of on that same theme, I guess, uh, do you have any predictions on what big issues are gonna come up for the rest of this year's session? You all will end in June, in theory. In Is June. there anything that you think uh, will come up? You know, you're, it's almost never ending, the topics that I get asked um, to focus on every single day. So there are still criminal justice issues that are concerning people, parole and letting the elderly out of prison when they really are at the point where they're not going to do harm to anyone if they come back into our communities. Um, there are serious concerns about the gig economy and figuring out how we establish rules of the road because we all know the economy has radically changed even before COVID. COVID has taken us a huge step further into gig economics. And we really need to get our arms around making sure people are being paid fairly. People have benefits when they are working for online companies and that we really understand what the 21st century economy is looking like because we need to make sure our laws matched what our economics are. So let's switch gears and do a full 180. I wanna to talk to you about JCOPE, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. It's the state's public ethics agency and you've been uh, one of, I think the strongest supporters in overhauling JCOPE and possibly just scrapping it and replacing it with something else. I think we can all agree that JCOPE really isn't the agency that we want it to be in that it doesn't really come out with a lot of tough enforcement actions. And the, the conversation around that has really been heightened lately because of everything that's going on with the governor. So my first question to you is, is let's start with, is, is there an appetite in the legislature you think right now for overhauling JCOPE at a time when uh, we have such a serious focus on ethics issues? Um, yes, I do think there's an appetite because there's a realization with all of the exposés involving the governor and his staff that we don't have any mechanism 
to really bring these complaints to or to do follow through unless you are going to start having prosecutions by attorney generals and, you know, calling for federal intervention. You shouldn't have to start there on state issues. So the fact that Jacob has proved itself incapable of handling even some basic type of complaints, they've proved to be, it's impossible for them to be independent when it looks, when looking at the governor and his staff, because the governor appoints the majority of people on Jacob and seems to be the one hiring the executive director. How can we truly expect independence there? When you are working for government, you need to have a mechanism or a place to go to bring legitimate complaints about violation of law or violation of your rights as an employee of the government. And it's really very clear in New York, we just don't have that now. So I think it's fair to say that I think there are very few people who actually like Jacob and like the work that it's doing. What do you think it's going to take to get the majority of lawmakers on the side of, we need to do something about Jacob and here's what we're going to do? Well, there are a few separate proposals that would do some fixes around the edges, and I'm not saying I don't support them because I need change now, but I really believe we need a new constitutional amendment where we spell it out, we bring it to the voters, they vote yes, and it becomes part of our constitution. And it has to be a broader effort than what we had up until now, when it has to ensure that people who are independent of the current administration and the current legislature have the majority of positions on Jacob, that they have the powers in law to really dig into and investigate, that they have the power to bring determinations and to refer to the criminal justice system if and when necessary. We need to make sure that this is broader than just the public officer's law which is an important law for all of us to follow when we work for government. But as we've learned with sexual harassment, it's very hard to follow through on sexual harassment in the context of the public officer's law because it was never designed to address that issue. So we need to be broader thinking about what are the kinds of issues that people may need to bring as complaints and to have appropriate standards um, for both how we investigate, and what laws people can be found to have violated. So in terms of a constitutional amendment, that takes a few years to, to get moving. Um, it does. So do you think that you could move that this year? Is that a possibility in terms of the first passage of the constitutional amendment? Yes, I've been talking to my leader and the council's office about answering a few of confusing questions about the current draft. So we probably are introducing a new draft in both houses. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we might be able to get first passage in both houses. You really hate to waste a crisis. And with all due respect, I think the governor's behavior on any number of issues have led us to both a crisis and also a recognition that we don't have the right infrastructure in place to address these problems when they happen. All right, well, we will look out for it. State Senator Liz Kruger, thanks so much for being here as always. Thank you, Dan.
So before we leave you for the week, I wanted to bring you an interesting idea that's being pushed right now by New York's dairy farmers. They say they can produce natural gas using waste from their farms and that it's renewable. More from John Patterson, a dairy farmer from Cayuga County and a member of the Northeast Dairy Producers Association. John, thanks so much for being here. Yes, thanks, Dan, for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. Of course, anytime. So you are part of a number of farmers who say that we could get renewable natural gas by using agricultural waste, which we obviously have quite a bit of in New York State. Can you take us through the process first? How would we get that natural gas from the agricultural waste? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're looking to have anaerobic digestion be part of um, the low carbon fuel standard where we would take um, an anaerobic digester is like a big stomach. So we take the waste from the dairy cattle or from the um, the landfill, if it's being diverted from the landfill, we would be able to bring that in, put it into this big concrete tank um, and heat the heat it up and then we can capture the methane off of that and then clean the methane up and put it into the existing infrastructure that's already in place for um for natural gas so this would be used in addition to natural gas but it, it's renewable natural gas because we continue to make it all the time and this wouldn't be something that you produce energy just for dairy farmers it would be energy that's sold to the state is that what i'm understanding you know, in a perfect world, I'd love to see the buses in New York City running on renewable natural gas produced from upstate dairy farms. You know, that's a great way to keep food produced in New York State and help the state meet its renewables goals. And you would get money for it, I'm assuming, right, as dairy farmers, because obviously I know dairy farmers struggle right now, and they have for a number of years because of different markets that are coming out and supply chain issues. So this would also be presumably an economic boost for dairy farmers in New York? Absolutely. I think that the, the low carbon fuel standard has a uh, right now there are already developers in New York taking putting these systems online to move the gas to California um, and to sell into the California market. And I think that there's a great opportunity for New York to do one better by um, incorporating these organics that the state has banned from landfills into these systems uh, down the road. So what happens to this waste right now? Is it, is it, yeah, what do you do with it? I guess if we're not using it to make natural gas and some of it can't go into landfills, what's happening to it? So right now we use, we store top, like our, our animal waste, um, we store it and then we put it out on the land as uh, fertilizer to help offset uh, um, the need for commercial fertilizers. And these, uh, or some the piece that go into the landfills today, you know, when the new um, laws go into effect in January, that will be needing to, to not go there. So thinking of this from an environmental standpoint, uh, how clean is this, I guess? Uh, obviously, when you produce any sort of carbon-based fuel, there's going to be um, some sort of uh, carbon impact. How clean is this process of taking this waste and making it into natural gas that can then be used for energy in various places across the state? I, I believe that managed properly, it can be, it's a very clean process. I think that there's, uh, you know, CAFOs in New York ha are under um, the need, un under a lot of regulations by the state to make sure we manage our nutrients properly. And I think that this is a great way to um, continue to utilize that system that's already in place for the state and um, manage more nutrients. So I guess my final question for you is, uh, 
What needs to happen for this to be more widespread in New York State? We already have a few places around the state that are using these digesters to make this natural gas. How would we get it to take off and become more popular in New York State? I think that's where the low uh, carbon fuel standard comes into place. So right now there's a lot of these systems that were built to produce electricity and um, that's not um, a good model anymore. You know, that's something that isn't going to come to fruition large scale in New York. And I think that the low carbon fuel standard is a great opportunity for New York to um, take this gas and produce renewable natural gas that will offset um, fossil fuels in the state. All right, well, we will see how it works out. John Patterson, a dairy farmer from Auburn and from the Northeast Dairy Producers Association, thanks so much. Yes, I, I think that I'd just like to say that the NETPA was founded by uh, dairy farmers over 30 years ago on environmental stewardship. And I think that this low carbon fuel standard is the next opportunity for us to continue in that direction. And what I'm really curious about is how environmental advocates feel about that idea and if it's something New York could move forward with. Hopefully we'll find out. But that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.